0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the founder and the editor of the New Books Network, and this is a special episode. Um, I learned recently on the BBC that the Putin regime has closed an organization that i followed for a few decades called Memorial. Um, Memorial is an organization dedicated to uncovering the uh, crimes, I think we could say, of the Stalinist regime and also to human rights. Uh, in the former Soviet Union and in uh, the Russian area today. Uh, I was very shocked to learn that um, it it had been closed. And when I learned that it had been closed, I knew that my old friend, Ben Nathans, who is a professor at the University of Pennsylvania, has followed and worked with Memorial for a couple of decades. And so I said to myself, I should really talk to Ben because I think the listeners to the New Books Network will want to know uh, a little bit about the history of Memorial, what they do, and why in the hell the Russian government shut them down? So, Ben, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Marshall. Great to be here and to be talking with you.
0: Yeah. So, could you begin the interview by telling us just a little bit about yourself?
1: Sure. As you said, I teach at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, one of my areas of interest is uh, the Soviet Union and the history of human rights. I'm currently finishing a book on the history of the dissident movement in the Soviet Union from its origins in the 1960s to its demise in the early 1980s. And in the course of doing research for that book, um, I've had a couple of opportunities to work in the archival collections of Memorial, both the main branch in Moscow and its uh, Petersburg section. Um, they have some unique archival holdings on the history of the dissident movement and also some of the KGB dossiers of the leading dissidents who were able to Requested and I I know the folks at Memorial um, fairly well. I've my my acquaintance with them goes back about twenty years.
0: Well, that's great. You're perfectly positioned to tell us uh, about the origin of the group, uh, what they do, and then again why it has been closed. So maybe you could begin by telling us a little bit about how I, I, and this is actually kind of hypothesis. The dissonant movement led to Memorial, or did it, or yeah,
1: yeah. Well, um, there are certain uh, biographical connections between the movement and the founding of Memorial, and uh, the ideas that animate Memorial are definitely part of the history of the dissident movement. So let me try to um, to sketch this out in, in broad terms. The dissident movement was born uh, in the mid-1960s out of the fear that a form of Stalinism was returning to the Soviet Union. You have to imagine a time in which any adult in, let's just choose a year, 1965, um, had Stalinism in mind as a living memory, and there were millions of Soviet citizens whose relatives had been either sent to the gulag or executed, or both, um, during the Stalin era, which lasted a quarter of a century and was the defining formative episode of Soviet history. That's when the Soviet state and Soviet society were, um, were forged. Uh, also in a very violent manner. So the original impetus of, of the dissident movement was a fear of the return of Stalinism. That was triggered by the arrest of a pair of writers in 1965, by the removal of Nikita Khrushchev from power, and the fear was that Khrushchevs, who had made a name for himself as a reformer of Stalinism, that Khrushchev's successors would push in the opposite direction, uh, towards greater violence, perhaps the use of political terror against internal enemies. By the end of the 1960s, though, Stalinism had not returned. Um, the Soviet Union was, of course, not you know, anything approaching a, a liberal, multi-party democracy, but it was also nothing approaching what it had been under Stalin. And in my view, the contrast between Stalinist Russia and post-Stalinist Russia is in many ways more dramatic and the contrast between, say, the Soviet Union of Brezhnev and the Russian Federation. So we we need to appreciate what a radical departure uh, the 1960s were for the Soviet Union after Stalin's death in 1953 and the consolidation of a more collectivist, less violent regime. But none of that was guaranteed, and so there was a visceral fear That there would be a relapse into Stalinist political arrangements and Stalinist ways of doing things. So, as I said, by the 1970s, it was pretty clear that whatever was happening with the Soviet Union, whether you liked it or not, it was not a return to the mass terror of Stalinism. And the dissident movement focused more and more on political visions for a better future for the Soviet Union. And I want to emphasize that virtually every dissident was thinking in terms of ways to reform the Soviet system, no one imagined that the system was ever going to disappear. It seemed so solidly and firmly anchored. Um, so in the 19, late 1970s and early 1980s, uh, a group of dissidents around a guy named Arsenei Raginsky and a woman named Larissa Bogoraz, Bogoraz's son, uh, Alexander Daniel, and several others founded a journal called Panyets, or Memory in Russian, which was devoted to literally filling in the blank spots of what happened under Stalin. These are blank spots that had been essentially turned into a taboo by the Soviet regime, which had its own official version of Soviet history and whose legitimacy as a political enterprise was largely grounded in its historical successes, Uh, beginning with the Bolshevik revolution, the first successful Marxist-inspired revolution that overturned a European monarchy, a European old regime. But the ultimate success of the Soviet system um, was its victory over Nazis in the Second World War. You can't imagine a greater validation of any system than having almost been crushed by the Nazis and then turned things around and destroyed uh, the Nazi opponent. This was the ultimate moral, political, historical legitimation of the system. And it remains the most important event in Russia's modern history. Not just for people like me who are professional historians, but for ordinary Russians, almost all of whom have one or another form of family connection to that war, just a reminder, 27 million Soviet citizens died in that war. Um, slightly fewer than hassles than the soldiers, which means the majority were civilians. So this is the defining event in certainly the 20th century history of Russia, possibly the modern history of Russia, as you know. The journal Pognitz was published, um, I shouldn't even say published, it was produced and reproduced in Samizdat, uh, a technique of self-publishing that involved typing out multiple copies of a document on a typewriter using onion skin paper and carbon paper to turn one copy into five or 10, or I'm told the strongest typists could get 16 copies uh, out out of a single typing session. And it circulated like a chain letter. If you received a copy, you were expected to create multiple copies so that it would um, extrapolate over time. Eventually, actual published printed versions appeared in Paris. And this was a journal that was devoted to unearthing oral testimony and the occasional leaked archival document about virtually anything that had happened under Stalinism. It was very empirical. It was dedicated to simply getting facts into circulation that had been silenced or denied by the Soviet regime. The the moving force, Raginsky. uh, was able to participate in about half a dozen issues of this journal before he was fired from his job at the uh, public library in Leningrad, the former imperial library of St. Petersburg. And being by temperament an historian himself, Reginsky could not resist the forbidden fruit. He had a strong suspicion that beyond all of these oral testimonies by survivors that he had gathered and transcribed and produced in Samistat, that there were official documents that would be even more revealing. And so at some point in 1979, 1980, I believe that was the year, he created a forged document that gave him access to a state archives, and that's where the forbidden fruit was. This was unmasked, he was arrested, and he was sentenced to four years in prison. With his arrest and with the mass arrests or forced emigration a pattern we are seeing again today uh, with arrest and mass or uh, forced emigration and dissidents in the 80s the movement essentially came to a halt and certainly within the kgb the sense was that they had achieved victory over their domestic opponents fast so forward to the late 1980s uh, after mikhail gorbachev has come to power as uh, general secretary a full generation younger than every other member of the Politburo, and Gorbachev's policy of Glasnost, a word that he took from the dissident movement going back to the '60s, starts making it starts making it imaginable, at least for some people, that greater openness could also mean greater openness about Soviet history. And Gorbachev is sending all the right signals about this in his public pronouncements. He wants to open up the investigation of the Soviet past, at least Stalinism. He has a somewhat rosy version of what NEP and Leninism were all about. NEP is the new economic policy in the 1920s involving a mixed capitalist socialist economy. So a number of people, many of them former dissidents, um, take it upon themselves to revive this project of uncovering the truth of what happened under Stalin as a technique for making sure that it doesn't happen again. The theory being that transparency and truth telling about the past is at least one step that people can take to assure that it doesn't recur. Here, I should say, just interspersing my own opinion, I don't think the past actually repeats itself. And I don't think that studying the past is any guarantee that it doesn't repeat itself. But one has to understand the hunger, I would say the moral hunger of people just to know the truth, the simple empirical truth. How many millions of people were sent to the gulag? Was it 1 million or was it 50 million? Turns out it was neither. It was about 18 million. How many people survived the, the gulag? Did most people die there? Did my relatives die there? People just wanted to know what happened. On, on a visceral biographical family level. That was the mission of this new group that Raginsky and others founded, calling it Memorial, dedicated to uncovering the truth about what happened under Stalinism, how many victims were there, who were the victims, what were their individual fates. It's a massive undertaking because as it turned out, it involved millions and millions of people. Memorial struggled for years to establish itself as a legal, solely legitimate organization. And here's where things get really interesting for historians. The problem with establishing Memorial as an independent organization is that that legal category, the category of what we would call a non-governmental organization, did not exist. It, it didn't exist conceptually within the body of Soviet law. And so Memorial experimented. They thought for a while they would register themselves as a sports organization, a city of Moscow. They were literally just groping for a legal category so that they could establish themselves so that they could own property and they could be a legal entity. They tried again and again and again with one more fanciful definition after another. And what happened was when Andrei Sakharov died in December of 1918, Uh, Sorry, 1989, excuse me, that's my old brain, December of 1989, December 14th, 1989, there was an enormous public funeral for him in Moscow, which tens of thousands of people attended. The leader of the country, Mikhail Gorbachev, did what a genuine statesman would do. He attended the funeral too. To pay his respects to Sakharov, Sakharov, after all, had been liberated from his internal exile in December of 1986 by the same Mikhail Gorbachev. And when Mikhail Gorbachev paid his respects to Safarov's widow, Elena Bonner, which is again what statesmen are supposed to do, he asked the right question. What can I do for so you in your hour of need? And Elena Bonner had an answer ready. And the answer was, you can register a memorial as a legal organization in the Soviet Union. Gorbachev said he would and he kept his word. And Memorial was registered as the first genuinely non-governmental organization in the Soviet Union, not sponsored by the party and not subject to oversight or control as Russians say by the party. That happened in 1989 and Sakharov had been one of the sort of spiritual forces around the founding of Memorial. He did not actually participate in its its, uh, gathering activities, but he was in a sense, the the spiritual godfather of Memorial, and has maintained that connection to Sakharov ever since. So the Soviet Union falls apart in 1991, Memorial continues its activity. And what is its activity? They send researchers to state archives where thousands and thousands of documents are now available for inspection. And they do the hard empirical trench work of tracing case after case of people who were arrested, imprisoned, interrogated, tortured, sometimes executed, sometimes sent to the gulag, sometimes died in the gulag, sometimes returned from the gulag, sometimes were rehabilitated by the same Soviet government that had arrested and imprisoned them in the first place. And Memorial constructs an enormous ongoing database with more than 3 million people now of the victims of Stalinist repression. They also do pathbreaking research on Soviet citizens who were enslaved by the Nazis and forced to work in German factories in Germany having been deported from the Soviet Union during the second world war. These are the famous Ostarbeiter. They also do pathbreaking research on the fate of Soviet soldiers who were seized and held in, uh, Soviet POW camps inside Nazi Germany. These were the so-called Russenlager where the rates of mortality were rivaled only by places like Auschwitz and Treblinka. These were death camps for Soviet soldiers. Many, many more people survived the Gulag, a much higher percentage of Gulag prisoners survived than did Soviet POWs. And this was, of course, deliberate on the part of the Nazis, you know, 4% of American and British POWs died in German camps. Somewhere between 80 and 90% of Soviet soldiers died in Nazi camps. And all of this was documented and translated into a database kept by Memorial. Another area that they did pioneering research, I shouldn't be saying the past tense because their work will continue no matter what. Another area where they do pioneering research is on the history of the dissident movement. They have collected memoirs, diaries, uh, inventories of apartment searches so that we now know what books dissidents were reading. We have a sense of their textual universe, thanks to the Uh, documents that the the KGB created every time it searched someone's apartment. This is the best, richest, most fully documented archive of the Soviet dissident movement in the world, with one exception. And the exception is the archive of the KGB itself, which unfortunately is closed to researchers, at least in Moscow. The former Republican branches in Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, Ukraine, etc. Those are open, but the Moscow branch, the motherlode, is closed. Along with all of this pioneering historical work, creating a unique, world-class historical archives, whose fate now hangs in the balance, Memorial also had a much more present-minded mission, the second half of its, of its task, and that was to draw attention to human rights violations happening now in the Russian Federation. Those included uh, violations happening in the course of the various wars in Chechnya. They included publicity about rights violations vis-a-vis ethnic minorities in the Russian Federation, especially migrants from the Caucasus, religious minorities, all sorts of people whose human rights uh, had been violated, they too were documented by Memorial and they were publicized. Either one of these activities, and of course both in tandem, were more than enough to make Memorial the constant subject of surveillance by the KGB's successor, the Federal Security Service, the FSB. So Memorial has pretty much always been operating under the careful eye of the Kremlin, even as it maintained and reanimated its own independence from the state. Things got particularly bad in 2012 when uh, the Russian parliament, the Duma, at Putin's behest, passed the so-called foreign agent law. This this made headlines. Uh, This was a law that required any organization that receives funding from abroad doesn't matter whether it's uniquely foreign funding, any foreign funding whatsoever, to declare itself a foreign agent, or in Russian, an inestranian agent, which in Russian basically means foreign spy. So it's a, it's a toxic label. I was actually in Moscow when the law passed and I was working at the archives in Memorial and someone painted on the wall of Memorial and then a big heart next to the word USA. The idea being this is this is an American operation designed to discredit uh, the Russian Federation and the Putin government. So, like many organizations, Memorial faced a very difficult choice: do you accept that toxic label, or do you give up your foreign funding? But it's worse. It's a it's a terribly insidious law, because. Any organization that is threatened with the labeled foreign agent also becomes a hot potato for potential Russian builders. An oligarch who gives money to an organization like Memorial risks being at least ostracized and at worst punished or arrested by the FSB. So it essentially, by taking on that label, you are making yourself an untouchable. It's not just, not just money. There's a kind of chain reaction. Memorial used to sponsor a high school essay contest where kids would be encouraged to interview their grandparents who had lived through the Soviet period to learn what life was like for them. After Memorial uh, was branded a foreign agent, no schools would cooperate with it. No museums would partner with it to do exhibitions. About the Gulag, or about the dissident movement, or about the slave laborers who were deported from the Soviet Union to work in Germany, it became it became um, a, a kind of non-entity. And what has happened over the last year, since January of 2021, is a further tightening of the screws, and then the ultimate step, where the government found the pretext. Now, i'll talk about that in a second which found the pretext not just to hem in memorial and constrict its activities and its liaisons with other organizations in russian society it actually found a way to uh, shut it down and tired. the pretext was that memorial had repeatedly violated the terms of the foreign agent law in two ways one they had failed to indicate at every necessary step, that it was a foreign agent. And this is where things get ludicrous. Every web page of every website with Memorial on it has to identify it over and over and over again as a foreign agent. Every time the word Memorial appears in the transcript of an interview, it has to be identified in parentheses as. A foreign, which has been identified by the Kremlin as a foreign agent. If you read transcripts of these interviews, it's like a joke. You know, every time the word memorial comes up, it has this moniker that comes after it. And if it fails to have that moniker, it can be fined. And it was fined over and over again, thousands of dollars. You know, this is an NGO that doesn't have a lot of money to throw around. And eventually the government built up a case that said, The failure to include that phrase, foreign agent, has occurred enough times, and mind you, they also targeted publications that had been published before 2012, before the law was actually enacted, a classic case case of retrospective application of a law that didn't exist at the time it was committed. This ludicrous case was translated into the demand that the organization be liquidated and the, the disproportion between the alleged crime and the punishment is obscene. The idea that you would shut down the country's leading civic organization because of technicalities like this, many of which are false in their own right, is crazy and, and reveals the obvious political motivation. The other infraction, and pardon me for going on for so long, but I just don't- Please good, go. Please go ahead. Uh, The other infraction that the government alleges, the the prosecutor alleges, is that on the list of current political prisoners, which currently numbers over 420, and Morial keeps this list and has been keeping it for years, it has ballooned uh, in in the last five years, on this list of, of 420 plus political prisoners, according to the prosecutor, are individuals who have engaged in, quote, terrorism and extremism. As any lawyer can tell you, those are exceedingly elastic terms, especially extremism, which can encompass almost anybody, and some of the anybodies who are alleged extremists, according to the prosecution's case, are Jehovah's Witnesses. One of the terrorists or advocates of terrorism on that list is Alexei Navalny, Putin's principal political opponent, who he attempted to poison, I'm sorry, who he did poison, probably in attempt to kill. And they promptly arrested once he returned from convalescence in Germany. So this is a nakedly political attack on the preeminent uh, human rights civic organization in Russia. And this sends a very potent message to all other NGOs. And that message is, nobody is safe now. Mm -hmm. And I mean, nobody. If Memorial can be taken down, anybody can be taken down.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, let me ask us a couple of, I'm kind of coldly empirical questions. How many people are involved in Memorial? Does, how, how big is its staff and where is it and, and who's going to be affected by the closure? Yeah.
1: Um, the headquarters of Memorial is in Moscow and there are over 50 branches in cities all across the Russian Federation. The Moscow branch, uh, not surprisingly, is the largest, uh, the best endowed, and has the most critical archives. I would guess the number of employees there is somewhere in the neighborhood of three to four dozen. and That includes people who are working both on the historical side and on the human rights monitoring side. The two next largest branches are in St. Petersburg and Pern. about 700 miles east of Moscow. Those branches I'm thinking have a dozen, maybe two dozen people at most, they're much smaller operations, but they've done absolutely fantastic work in recovering mass burial sites and creating museums and other online um, information sources about how Stalinism played out and specifically how state repressions played out in the 1930s and 40s. -hmm.
0: And, and how is this staff and organization funded?
1: Uh, it's a mixture of uh, domestic funding, including many, many small donations by people, and many of those people are the descendants of uh, victims of Stalinist repression, and funding from abroad, uh, from
0: foundations in Europe and the United States. And... What will happen to its assets now, and I'm thinking particularly about this database. I love databases and work with them all the time. Uh, They're wonderful tools. Uh, What will happen to these assets now?
1: Yes, that is an open question, um, the solution to which is being worked out as we speak. Um, My understanding is that a massive scanning project is underway right now. to essentially create digitized versions of most or all of the archival holdings um, of especially the Moscow and Petersburg branch. And as you can imagine, that is an expensive and very labor-intensive operation. The websites, uh, which include uh, just enormous quantities of unique information, Um, not only a database of victims of the gulag, but The complete run of the underground dissident newspaper, the Chronicle of Current Events, has been digitized and annotated in a fantastic online edition. All of these things have been mirrored, and my understanding is that they are safe on servers outside of Russia. It's not clear what form of access there will be both for Russian citizens and for citizens of other countries but the online material that's housed in the website of Memorial, I think has been copied, mirrored, and it will be accessible in the future.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do the folks at Memorial have any legal recourse? Is there an appeals process or any such mechanism that might reverse the decision?
1: Wow. Yeah, I'm not really sure about the legal technicalities. The, The rulings from earlier this week Uh, specifically from uh, Wednesday and Thursday, um, came from the Russian Supreme Court. So, that's the highest uh, judicial body in the land. We can't go higher than that. However, because Memorial is an international organization with longstanding connections to NGOs, I would say sister NGOs in other countries, there has been some talk of recourse to the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg. Russia is a member of the Council of Europe. Russia um, is a frequent visitor uh, in the form of plaintiffs at the European Court of Strasbourg. And it needs to be said, um, in virtually every case where that court has found against the Russian state, that is in favor of human rights claimants from in the Russian Federation, the Russian state has abided by the punishment, which takes the form of a fine, unfortunately, nothing more than a fine. But at least in theory, Russia is still under the jurisdiction of the European Court of Human Rights, and it's conceivable that Memorial would launch a case in that um, arena. It's also possible that some of the branches, it's not clear what the implications of this week's Supreme Court rulings are for the branches of Memorial outside of Moscow. Needless to say, it doesn't look good, but there may be some wiggle room that can at least buy some time for those branches. It's, it's unclear to me what their, strat, their, their legal strategy is going to be. And I want to add many of the lawyers who in the past have represented Memorial in cases brought by the state have had to leave the country. They've been held out of the country. Mm-hmm.
0: Are people who've been associated with Morel in any danger of further prosecution as individuals?
1: The only answer to that question is yes. They're all potentially in danger. Anybody associated with any of these organizations is in danger in Russia right now. The situation is spiraling downward for whatever remnants of civil society were named, and dozens and dozens of people have either been arrested or essentially forced to emigrate. So yes, people are, yeah. are physically at risk.
0: Uh, is there any international pressure from various Western European or the American government or the British government uh, to, yes. to reverse this decision? And, and how effective might that be, and what form might it take?
1: There have been statements of uh, varying intensity by um, our own Secretary of State, Antony Um The most forceful statements have come, as might one should expect, from Germany, um, which is very closely engaged with things in Russia because of geographical proximity and historical entanglement. And also because the German government, whether under Angela Merkel or by all appearances under Olaf Schulz, the new SPD um, chancellor, um, has been vocal in its defense of civil society in Russia. Germany seems to be invested perhaps more than any other foreign government, at least any really major palace foreign government, in the thriving of civil society in Russia. And so this, this marks a very, very bad turn of events for that long-term project. As you know, however, this event is not taking place in isolation. The assault on Memorial is part of a long campaign to dismantle whatever remnants of civil society remain in Russia. And in the immediate context, it is often getting overshadowed by the buildup of troops on the border with Ukraine. Earlier uh, this year. In the summer and fall, it was getting eclipsed by the crackdown in Belarus on protesters, and then the artificially fabricated uh, migrant crisis at the border between Belarus and Poland. In my darker moments, when I asked myself, why is Putin
0: doing this? Yeah, this was my question. I'm glad you say this because I I really want to know exactly what he's after. Please speculate or tell me. Yeah, I
1: I wish I had a coherent answer for you. I can only speculate. Why? Why not just continue the status quo, where you allow just enough, by way of civic organizations, to create a kind of facade of independent society, just as you know you create a facade of a, of democratic political competition by allowing a few harmless political parties to to conduct their business, while while essentially taking out any serious political rivals. Why not just continue doing that? It seemed to be working pretty well, and you know Putin's polling numbers were. No, they were fluctuating, but they would, they would be the envy of any American president. Basically. But why why push things to the wall? So the most alarming theory that I can think of about why he's doing this is that it is a preemptive strike to eliminate and or silence any potential deaths, uh, domestic critics in preparation for an invasion of Ukraine sometime in January or February or March. So take them out first, rather than having to deal with difficult people raising unpleasant facts in the course of an
0: actual invasion. Yeah. What's well, funny, because when I heard Putin say, we're not going to invade Ukraine, what I immediately thought is, that's what you say before you invade a country. Well, <laughs> <right>.
1: <laughs> I, I can't pretend to know what his, what his game plan is, but um, one possible explanation is, is the one that I just mentioned. Another is that Putin is scared he's he's losing confidence in his ability to engineer elections in which he is uh, receives overwhelming mandates from the population. Remember when you're presiding over managed democracy, it's not enough just to get a majority. you have to you have to get a knockout, which is why you have mass voter fraud in a situation where Putin I can I can assure you Putin would win handily without any fraud. If an election were held tomorrow and he would have won all those previous elections handily without any fraud. But he's not it's not good enough just to win. He needs to win decisively. I'm not sure why this is. Maybe because he doesn't trust democracy and so he he needs he needs a black and white outcome from these election. Maybe it's just a hangover from the Soviet era when every election involved 99% turnout. And of course, the Communist Party won 99% of the vote because there were no other parties to vote for. But, you know That's the system Putin grew up in. And I think it's, it's uh, probably been a very difficult adjustment for, for his generation to have actual multi-party elections, even when the parties are, are terribly weak compared to Putin's standing. So that's that's another possible explanation that he's he's just nervous about this so called managed democracy. And then, you know, another factor is that while he got this enormous boost from the annexation of Crimea, I mean that just he was popular before. He was slipping a little bit, but again, numbers that any American president would have envied. After the annexation of Crimea, he was in up to the almost the ninety percent approval. But it didn't last very long. You know, it lasted a couple of years. The sanctions started to take their toll on the economy. <clears throat> the glory of, of, of reacquiring Crimea just, you know, it, it's not the gift that keeps, keeps on giving. It was, a, it was an infusion for a couple of years, and then it kind of faded. So maybe he's thinking he needs another infusion, and that's going to be Ukraine in one form or another, whether it's an invasion or something else and he wants to get these domestic critics
0: out of the way in advance. Just to broaden the scope a little bit, and this may seem like a naive question, but I think it will occur to a lot of listeners, if you look at the way the Germans responded to what they did during the Second World War and particularly the Holocaust, Um, they wanted to know and they found out. And so now we understand these horrific events very well Why is it the case that in Russia they don't seem to be able to come to terms with these things?
1: Marshall, I'm going to take take issue with some of the premises of your question. Okay, that's fine. The Germans did not immediately want to know. There was deep, deep denial and a deep, deep silence, both in terms of public speech and within families. Children did not learn from their parents what actually happened during the Third Reich. So it really took until the 1970s before the process of deep, honest, and extremely troubling and painful engagement with Germany's past gathered enough momentum to produce the kind of results that you refer to. So essentially it took a full generation for that process to happen. So that's one thing. Um, another thing is that Germany was a defeated country occupied by foreign armies. They weren't doing this on their own. They were, you know, they had to suffer through the Nuremberg trials and through revelation after revelation, all at the hands of foreigners. So um, it was not an easy or voluntary process uh, during those initial 30, 40 years at all. I do agree with you, though, that in the larger scheme of things, Germany today. Whatever faults and whatever gaps there may be, I think, and I say this as a Jew, Germany is a model of what it means to have a sustained, honest, really open engagement with one's own very, very dark past.
0: Yeah, this is what I was thinking of, yes.
1: I don't think any country has done more and has incorporated more of what it learned into its school curriculum and into its public discourse than Germany. So there's a, there's a lot that's very, very encouraging there. But again, it took a long time. It happened initially under the occupation by a foreign military force. And of course, none of that pertains to Russia and its engagement with the Soviet past. And there's, there's another critical difference. Most of the victims of Nazi atrocities were not German citizens. Most of the victims of Soviet repression, including the worst mass killing, were Soviet citizens. And you know how civil wars tend to be the most brutal wars of all, because they get brother against brother and cousins against cousins. I think that the, the emotional trauma of what Soviet citizens inflicted on themselves and each other is actually in the end going to be much greater than what the Nazis did to their victims, whether Jews, homosexuals, uh, communists, or whatever. This is this is in many ways even more troubling.
0: Yeah. I think you make a very good point. I interviewed a historian of the American Civil War yesterday and the aftermath of the Civil War, and one of the things she pointed out is it took and is taking several generations to really understand what the South did. We, we, didn't really ever come to terms with it, and if I think about what I was taught in grade school about the Civil War and what a wonderful person Robert E. Lee was, <laughs> you know, that it, my kids are not taught that anymore. But it took, you know, a hundred years to get us. To and that. It's, not, it's not over.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I, yeah. I grew up, I grew up uh, less than a mile from Robert E. Lee Park
0: in Baltimore. Yeah, right, right, yeah. So it, it, it is, I, I. I, I very much value your point that it does take time and especially if the trauma is inflicted by your brothers and sisters. Yes, this is a very difficult nut to crack. And and I don't I don't I certainly don't envy the Russians and having to deal with it. So we've taken up a lot of your time and I appreciate it. It's been a wonderful interview. How can people help Memorial if they want to?
1: I've been thinking about that. Um it's it's not easy. Um it's really not easy. I mean, I have tried to give whatever assistance I can. You know, whether it's moral assistance, just reaching out to colleagues there to let them know, in what is right now, I think their darkest hour, um, that I am concerned about them, that I'm thinking about them, that I want to help. I, I've made financial contributions. Um, I've done some joint projects with them. I think just not feeling like they're alone, and if they have. Supporters in the West um, is very meaningful to the the staff of the various branches of the There was a petition when the court case was pending that over a hundred thousand people around the world signed. That was a heartening line developing. But what I really want to say is that, uh, and here I'm echoing something that Arseny Raginsky, the, the the moving force behind the Morial who died a few years ago, said in in a documentary film about him. The real issue is why doesn't Memorial have more support in Russian society? Yeah, I was gonna ask about this. Why haven't more people rallied to its defense and supported its mission? Of course, part of the answer now is fear. Because now being associated with Memorial, really it implies a certain risk to one's career and, and possibly to one's safety. But before the crackdown that began a year ago, there really wasn't that much risk, and yet Morial's message that, that Russians needed to come to terms with their past and needed to acknowledge what Memorial called the, the terrorism unleashed by Stalin in the 1930s, that really did not resonate very deeply and very widely. It's, it's easy to approve of that message in the West, but the situation for reasons that we were just discussing about coming to terms with the past on, on the level of an entire society Um, they've complicated that mission inside Russia itself. And uh, my own view, uh, I, I am an insider optimist, um, just by personality, (laughs) but my own view is that until uh, a sizable portion of Russian society sees itself as a stakeholder in this kind of project and is willing to to defend it, I don't know how much can be done for a group like the Montreal from outside the country. It really has to happen inside Russia.
0: I would share that opinion. And again, the parallel to Americans coming to terms with slavery in the Civil War, I think, is an appropriate example. It, it, You know, I think about my parents and what they thought and how they talked. And, you know, it, it, it takes generations to get to the point where you could actually embrace what your forebearers did. Because it's shameful. <laughs> I don't know what other word to use for it. Be mm-hmm. shameful. Yeah. And people don't like to be ashamed. Mm-hmm. Um, so. It's a That's, a, that's, a, that's a, a, a sobering note to end on. Well, Ben, thank you very much for agreeing to the interview. It's really been wonderful. I know that I've learned a lot. Um, and let me tell everybody that this is Marshall Poe, and I'm the founder and editor of the New Books Network, and we've been talking to Ben Nathans of the University of Pennsylvania about Memorial and its great work and its current troubles. And I hope everybody has a great day. Thanks for being on the show, Ben.
1: Thank you, Marshall. It's a pleasure.
0: I was very angry. I did. not did
1: it. I did a little bit of